The extremely famous filmmaker Woody Allen once said, if Jesus came back and saw what was being done in his name, he'd never stop throwing up. Very much Woody Allen-esque. See, to society, it's widely believed that the marking and the makeup of what a Christian is has been severely cracked. You see, the title of Christian has bled out, and for the majority from the inside, you know, from the outside looking in, it's not only just a dead faith, but to call someone a Christian is an inscription of a destructive person. A man was recently quoted who I'm not going to name, but he says very bluntly and expresses his opinions about Christianity. He says this, Christianity has become bloated with blind followers who would rather repeat slogans than actually feel true compassion and care. Christianity has become marketed and streamlined into a juggernaut of fear-mongering that has lost its own heart. When I read that, I think in the book, I think I literally said, Yamahama, like out loud, just bothered by it. See, if we're honest, I don't think any of us are shocked by these words, that the banner of Christian inspires such unfavorable reactions. Now, to be fair, this this isn't everybody's perception. I want to be fair. This isn't everybody's perception, but this is certainly the high percentages. And a leading cause of these unfavorable reactions comes down to the fact that Christians, so many of us in this room, that Christians are far more known for what they're against than what they are for. We're known for what we're against than what we are for. Christians are more known for their opposition than outstanding character. Christians are far more known for the law, or for the law than, than, than love or for hatred rather than hospitality. It's truly a us versus them mentality with the banner above us that reads Christians. See, personally, I know either if I'm getting my hair cut or I'm having a conversation somewhere out and about, I get nervous if they're about to ask me. If a certain person is about to ask me, are you Christian? I get nervous to say yes, knowing that the minute I say yes, I will be immediately stamped and stereotyped as anti-gay, anti-fun, anti-choice, anti-intellectual, illogical, hypocritical, brainwashed, NRA member, empire-building, Republican, blue-jean suburban dweller. See, now, whether any of those things are true of me or not, besides the point, that's besides the point. These heavy, stereotypical perceptions more often than not come with the identity of anybody who claimed to be Christian. See, like the perception that if you like Star Wars, that you automatically live in your mother's basement. It's like the perception that if you own a Prius, you automatically do CrossFit. Or the perception that if you like Nickelback, you hate good music. That's... Those are okay perceptions. Where's my discipleship group at? You guys know what I'm talking about. (laughs) So then that leads us to the obvious question, why in the world would anybody, anybody want to be a Christian? Or why would anybody want to bear the unflattering title of Christian? a title that feels more like an insult today, just as it did in the days that it was made up. See, it's in Acts chapter 11, which is open in the very Bibles before you, where we see the origin of the nickname Christian. 
This is the origin of the nickname Christian. It was, it was developed and created in a city called Antioch. Now, Antioch is important. And I was thinking as I was going to try to dive into the importance of a city, I was just assuming that, yes, there's going to be some geography and some history buffs who are like, cool, yeah, city talk. Or there's going to be some Bible nerds who are like, I'll be into this. But for the most part, if I say, let's talk about a city for a moment, everybody's going to be like, boring. Like nobody wants to talk about a city for a moment. And that's fine, whatever. But here's the thing. These cities and these regions and roads and coastlines that we have spent time talking about throughout the book of Acts have impacted us. They have impacted us, whether we realize it or not. These cities and climates and citizens have changed the world forever. And tonight, Antioch is no different. Antioch is unique. Antioch is special. Look at verse 19. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus, verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So these three verses start off by telling us essentially that the outbreak, the outbreak which began in Jerusalem, spread and spread and spread 300 miles north. 300 miles north. Without planes, trains, or automobiles. It spread 300 miles north. That's basically like Jerusalem to Antioch is basically like Phoenix to L.A. It's far. It's really far. And like L.A., Antioch was amongst the most highly populated cities in the world. It was Rome, it was Alexandria of Egypt, and then it was Antioch. Now, Antioch's estimated population, can anybody guess what they think it was at that time? Anybody take a gander? It's okay to talk in church. I ain't afraid. Anybody want to take, what? 375,000. Oh, little detailed, but that was good. I'm, pr- I'm proud of you. <laughs> Anybody else? All right, a little high. (laughs) If you're going to guess, guess right. (laughs) Just joking. joking. It was was around 500,000. Why does that sound familiar? Come on, core group. Core group who've been with us since like September. It's the west side. It's like the population of the west side. Population, Population of the west side. Isn't that fascinating? <laughs> Fellow Angelinos, tell me, tell me if any of what I'm about to say sounds familiar. See, Antioch, the capital of Syria, was considered a great, incredible cosmopolitan city. It was crowded. It was thriving. It was cranking with liberal studies. It was unbelievably diverse. And rarely, if you met somebody there in Antioch, they were actually from there. See, in Antioch, get this, they had somewhere in Antioch a 10-mile circumference garden that they believed the lover gods, Daphne and Apollo, set there. And it was populated, this giant garden, miles of garden was populated with prostitution. And what you do is you just walk in and you would indulge yourself. And this was considered the worship and the religion of Antioch. Hired magicians, sorcerers, charlatans, and Babylonian astrologers made a fortune off the people of Antioch. Simply, the people lived for their pleasures. 
See, one writer said this about the life in Antioch. It is one perpetual festival, revolving bath, brothel, amphitheater, and circus. See, if you know L.A. even a little bit, if you know Los Angeles even a little bit, this description of Antioch smells and sounds like L.A. Sexuality, entertainment, vast religious opportunities and beliefs. So as we, as current residents of essentially a modern-day Antioch, as we are about to read what happens in Acts 11, we are to be reminded of something incredible. That God can and does bloom a rose, even in the most vile of weeds. Because here's the thing, Antioch was blossoming. Antioch was ripe. Antioch was bubbling over with those who are being saved. See, the news about how some Jesus follower named Stephen was stoned to death in the streets for his faith in Jesus lit that place up. That's what I was talking about, right? They all scurried and scattered up there because of Stephen. People poured out of Jerusalem for fear of their life, and as the pouring was happening, it covered everything in its path, including Hellenist, diverse, pagan, Gentile cities like Antioch. All that meaning the cities were more than just Jewish communities, more than just Jewish traditionals. And Antioch is exploding. The same path that the good news traveled up came back the same way. It was traveled again to inform the apostles Antioch's rich harvest. Look down at verse 22. We're going to see how Jerusalem hears of this incredible blossoming in Antioch. Verse 22, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. If we could just for a moment do a pit stop right here. Um, I was just sitting in this, and I cannot tell you the amount of times I've had conversations I've had with people who have recently put their faith in Jesus, like there are some here tonight. You know, it's I'm new to following Jesus. I'm new to the Bible. I'm new to church. And in these early infancy stages, that one becomes, then that one becomes essentially a target of ridicule and attack. I just want to say this, and I want us to see this here, that it is no surprise. It should be no surprise when one puts their life in Jesus, then boom, immediate hardship. I've talked to people recently to put their life in Jesus and they, bad news here and bad news there. We don't want to be, I don't want us to be surprised because you just made, if you are new to Jesus, like I was years ago, when you're new to Jesus, I don't want us to be surprised because you just made the most important decision of your life and your flesh and the world and Satan hate you for it. Hate you so much for it. And so Barnabas tells these brand new Christians what? What does he say to them? And he exhorted them all to remain faithful. He goes, remain faithful. Remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. I mean, he has to. Barnabas is walking by this disgusting garden. And all these new Christians are like, what are we supposed to be doing? And Barnabas is like, you guys, remain faithful. Everybody's freaking out on me. Tell me that Christianity is a complete joke. That Jesus is a joke. And Barnabas is like, stay faithful. 
I hope the words for anybody who's new to the Christian faith or has been a Christian for 50 years can find comfort in those words. Verse 24, this is talking about Barnabas. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So the news gets to the Jerusalem church, and what do they do? Send a rep. Send a representative. Send somebody up there to figure out what's going on. And they pick the only person in the entire book of Acts who's ever been called good. What we know of Barnabas, which is important, he'll be coming more and more later on, he's outrageously generous with his possessions. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He's generous with his finances. Barnabas is known as what one commentator said, the man with the biggest heart in the church. Can you imagine that written on your tombstone? What a guy. So this big-hearted man arrives. He sees the bubbling over, which he calls then what? Look at verse 23. He saw the grace of God. All this crazy stuff is happening. The gospel is exploding. And he goes, I saw the grace of God. Now look at verse 20, or excuse me, uh, verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. And they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, this is nuts. First, Barnabas, as we'll see, understands the value and the principle of not doing silo work for Jesus. Barnabas is not like, how do I get the most glory for this massive church in Antioch? Barnabas does not try to lone ranger his ministry. Barnabas is far more about like, you know, he's more, he's more of an Avengers, you know, Justice League guy. He's more of a team player than a golfer. Barnabas likes to surround himself with people. See, it's verses like Barnabas here that fuel the motor. If you want to know this about this church or not, it's verses like this that fuel the motor of collective church to have two lead pastors. We have two lead co-pastor, co-planters here. We believe because this work is so vastly important that we believe it is wisest and safest and more beneficial for the people and for the pastors to make sure that there is shared leadership. This is important to know about collective church, if you care or not. Now, I don't say this because Lorenzo and I are geniuses. Look what we figured out. We're like Barnabas. I don't say that because we're geniuses. I say that actually because we're not geniuses. See, the pastors here, Lorenzo and myself, are very needful, needful men who are dependent upon each other and the Spirit of God. Now, I just wanted to put that little caveat on there. But Now, does anybody remember the last time Barney and Saul were together? This is so important. The last time they were together? Does anybody, anybody remember who Saul was? Saul was the spearhead. This is so nuts. Saul was the spearhead and the reason that the gospel of Jesus Christ had its outbreak. Not because he's some massive evangelist. Saul the preacher man. No, no, no. He's Saul the persecutor. See, Saul was a catalyst, but not of good, but of pure evil. Saul the animal, if you remember, used to rip father's and mothers, and the elderly, and children, and men and women from their homes. And he would take them, and he would either imprison them, he would torture them, or he would execute them. And get this, 
and Saul was Stephen's. You got to remember this. Saul was Stephen's like grim reaper. And remember why, again, I'm going to put this out there. Remember why all the people left Jerusalem and the gospel spread to Antioch? And Barnabas has the audacity to want and bring Saul to Antioch where people fled Saul. Is this making sense? Paul, sorry, Barnabas goes and grabs the persecutor, the once persecutor, to the very city where everybody fled Saul. Isn't this not insane? The nightmare man. All the stories told of Saul, the nightmare man. And Barnabas thinks it's a good idea to go grab him and bring him to all these people who are fearful of him. Barnabas is like, this is going to be a great idea. Now, friends, this does not only just seem like a bad idea. Let me just tell you, this is actually a brilliant idea. This is a brilliant move on Barnabas's and his agenda. Now, does anybody have any idea how many years has passed since Acts chapter 9, where Saul crashed and converged with Jesus as Saul was on his way to imprison more and more Christians? Does anybody have any idea how many years has passed? I heard, (laughs) don't be afraid to say it. Three years, okay. Uh, Historians and scholars would tell us, you're close. Stories and scholars would tell us about eight to 10 years have passed since Acts chapter nine. Saul is no longer the infant Christian. Saul is obviously no longer the persecutor. Saul is a beast of an entirely different kind. So much so that in just one chapter, get this, in just one chapter, he will take the reins of being the main character of the book of Acts until the very last chapter. We will say goodbye to Peterson. Saul is a beast. And for a solid year, these two preached and took care of and taught and equipped and exhorted and encouraged the entire church of Antioch. And as Antioch is diverse of culture and ethnicity, it grows in diversity of those who are coming to faith in Jesus, both the Jewish and the Gentiles. See, this is what this last couple weeks have been. If you guys remember, Jesus is not just a Messiah for those who are Jewish, but a Messiah for all of mankind. And as this new, this is so huge, and as this new humanity spurns forth, Antioch sees all this and mockingly labels and nicknames this new humanity Christians. You see all this stuff going on? We're going to call them Christians. I was thinking for 30 years, I was looking this up recently and doing some crazy research, but for 30 years, the band The Grateful Dead was not only infamous for their music, but their tremendous, tremendous following. Anybody ever heard here heard the Grateful Dead? Just making sure. Some people in the back are like Grateful Dead. <laughs> what in the world? Snapchat. So <laughs> I was born in two thousand one. See, <laughs> that's so dumb. <laughs> See, if you are a devoted fan, if you are a devoted fan of the Grateful Dead, and you traveled from show to show, do you know what you were called? A deadhead. A deadhead. And the deadheads were a subset which grew an incredible number, giving birth to a community with its own set of rules and even its own slang. I don't know if you knew that. They had their own slang. 
An entertaining book that I read came out some time ago called A Long Strange Trip, which is about the deadheads. It says this. They had only one thing absolutely in common. Each had experienced some inner click of affinity, some overwhelming sense of here I belong. It was a recognition of essentially spiritual experience that bound them together. Even the great late Jerry Garcia, frontman for the Grateful Dead, said, our strong suit is, is who we are and who our audience is, who our followers are, who our community is. And so as the outsiders looking into this community and this lifestyle of these followers, they couldn't help but notice that this crowd is unlike any other crowd they've ever seen. See, more than Beatlemania, more than the Stones, more than fish heads, so outsiders deemed it necessary to call them deadheads. See, in like fashion, those following Jesus became a subset which grew an incredible number, giving birth to an entirely new community. Thus, outsiders deemed it necessary to call them Christians, Christians. Now, that's an important distinction that I really want all of us to get, that Jesus did not come up with the title Christians. Jesus did not think this up. We've been called many things, as we'll see over the New Testament, that Christians are also called saints, the church, disciples, believers, brothers and sisters. But never, excuse me, but never were they titled Christians by Jesus himself. Again, this was the first, this at first was an insulting nickname given to those who observe, given those by who observed them. It's an insulting nickname, Christians, by those who observe them. And all I could do was help write down, isn't that incredible? Isn't that incredible? This is a crucial observation for us to make. What in the world were the followers of Jesus doing to be called Christians? We know what the deadheads were doing. What were Christians doing for people to go, let's call them Christians? By all the outsiders, by all the haters, by all the onlookers. See, they're not defined by what their occupation was, what they look like, what their salary was, more natural connections. Their identity is defined first and foremost by the identity of another. Again, like deadheads. For Christians, this was something, there was something about them. Maybe you here as an unchristian can also ring true to that. Going, yeah, there's, there's something off about Christians. Or there's something unique about Christians. Something distinguishable to the rest of the world. See, they weren't known as God's people, even though they were. They weren't known as Torah readers, even though they did. They were known, they weren't even known, think about this, they weren't even known as lovers or hospi- you know, hospitable or generous or giving, uh, even though they were. They were given the title of Christ ones. I just find that fascinating. You see, there are so many who claim to know God's love, read the Bible, say a prayer, would say that they're spiritual, that they live by faith. But if that's true, then what makes the title of Christian any different? If all these other things are true for anybody, what makes the title of Christian so different, unique, or I don't maybe special? In my opinion, here it is one of the small reasons. Christians are different not because they live by faith, but because of the object of their faith. Everyone here probably gets that and knows that. 
See, those in Antioch, the onlookers, the haters, the outsiders, they're watching this new community teach like Jesus, act like Jesus, love like Jesus, look like Jesus, work like Jesus, speak like Jesus, live like Jesus, believe in Jesus. They are the king's people. They are of Christ. To those outsiders in Antioch looking in, Christ was their capital and core identifying factor of their entire way of life. You can almost frame it this way, if we really want it to sink in. By the way, we, right here, Westsiders in this room, Christians, by the way, we orient and set our lives, would outsiders look at us and go, ah, Christians, they're like Christ, they're, they're, they're Christ ones. So to be a Christian, to be a Christian, is not some game, it's not some lanyard we put on when we, you know, are in certain circles. To be Christian, it's not merely a suggestion, some philosophy or ideology. I love what author Oswald Chambers says about Christianity. He says, if Christianity does not affect my money and my marriage relationships, it is not worth anything. Christianity does not affect my money and my marriage relationships. It is not worth anything. Meaning, if it's not more than Sunday, it's not worth anything. Meaning, if it's not more than compartmentalized spirituality, it's not worth anything. Christianity affects our existence, our actions, our conduct. Now, I was thinking, obviously, that this isn't an exhaustive list of what it means to be a Christian, but if I could break it down really simply to like three Ds, an alliterated three Ds that we remember of a solid grasp of what it is. Maybe this will be helpful for some who are curious or for, to remind us as Christians. To be a Christian, to have the inscription of Christian is to believe in the doctrine of Christ, delight in Christ, and do our duty for Christ. Doctrine of Christ, delight in Christ, and duty for Christ. If any one of these components components are compromised, it would need to be realigned. We see in Acts 19, or excuse me, Acts 11, 19, and 20, that they spread the word of Jesus, the non-negotiable truth that he is, and pay attention, that Jesus is the divine, God incarnated in flesh, born of a virgin, sinless, fully man and fully God, crucified, buried, resurrected, the way, the truth, and life, ascended, architect of the church, King Jesus. That's what they are preaching. That's what they are spreading. They weren't spreading that Jesus was some bottom shelf, muzzled, decaffeinated, Disney Jesus. For quite a few weeks now, um, Every Thursday, uh, two of the same men of a different faith that go door to door uh, stop by my house at 11 a.m. on the dot. And it's just, and I'm pumped. One of, them's, one of his names is, is Casey, and the other names is James. Um, and we sit and we talk for a few minutes about Dodger baseball, and I nod my head as if I know what he's talking about. Like, oh, yeah, Kershaw. And that's about as far as I go. <laughs> 
Gaza. So they've become friends and we've enjoyed another one, one another's company. But our discussions week in and week out always come to a very loving but halt when the Christian faith, oh, excuse me, I guess when we identify unmovable truths with the doctrine of Jesus. I say, no, 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 Jesus is this. And they say, no, 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 Jesus isn't this. See, the Christian faith is no longer Christian faith as those men would agree if those doctrinal components are erased. And these very doctrines, if they are worth anything, if they're worth anything, it affects, it should affect our behavior. Christianity is not just some creed, but it involves action and duty. I love what we see here just in the next set of verses. Just for a small example, look at verse 27. Look what the church in Antioch does. So they understand the doctrine of Jesus. Now they're going to get down to the duty. Verse 27, now in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all of the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. These Gentile Christians sending money to the very people not too long before could not stand them. And they're sending them money because they are blown away by the generosity that they found in the doctrine of God who was generous in giving of his own son. They are motivated and moved to give to those who are in need back in Jerusalem due to this famine. It's actions and duties like this that make outsiders look in and go, these people are not normal. They are peculiar. It was cities like Antioch, get this, where sociologists, I've said this quote before, but it's so good. It's in cities like Antioch where sociologist Rodney Stark can say confidently, confidently about Christians. It says Christianity revitalized, or revitalized life in a Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of social relationships able to cope with many urgent urban problems. To cities filled with the homeless and the impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to the cities faced with epidemics, fires, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. The beefy quote. As Christ-centered, a Christ-centered life is a reality that inverts and reverses the importance of what this world tells us we are to value the most. Author Eugene Peterson says it this way about being a Christian, it's much shorter. We follow a very different leader, one in whom virtually every detail guides us in a way of living that is counter to that of the world. If you are here and you claim to be Christian, for those here who claim to be un-Christian, just know this, this is our target. That duty is inseparable from our belief. That duty is inseparable from our doctrine. There's a great little story um, with an inspiring saint who had the chance to go up to you know, the giant that was Mother Teresa. 
And as they approach, they ask, how in the world can I be like you? Like, how, 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 how can I be like you, Mother Teresa? Do you know what her answer was? She looked at him and said, find your own Calcutta. That was a region where she operated. That was her region where she operated as an embedded missionary. See, Mother Teresa knew the heartbeat of the Christian life all comes down to doing. It is a dump of a faith system if it does not affect our action, our existence, our reality, our doing. Find your Calcutta, find your area, find your West Side, find your Culver City, find your Santa Monica, find your neighborhood, your street, your complex. Doctrine, duty, and lastly, delight in Jesus. So obviously with a focus like this tonight, and we'll finish with this, but with a focus like this tonight, I've been easily making the separation between Christian and unchristian. This last point is one that is so immensely pertinent for both categories of people that I hope our noodle falls out of our head. So let me build towards it, if you will. I would say that the slogan of the Christian faith, the fine print under the title Christian, could easily be three small words. And that would be come and die. C.S. Lewis, in Mere Christianity, his book that exposes what it means to be a Christian, he says, and this is Jesus talking, he says, give me all of you. I don't want so much of your time, so much of your talents and money, and so much of your, your work. I want you, all of you, I've not come to torment or frustrate the natural man or woman, but to kill it. No half measures will do. I don't want to only prune a branch here and a branch there. Rather, I want the whole tree out. Hand it over to me, the whole outfit, all of your desires, all of your wants and wishes and dreams. Turn them all over to me. Give yourself to me and I will make of you a new self in my image. Christian. Give me yourself, and in exchange, I will give you myself. My will shall become your will. My heart shall become your heart. I want like those 8,000 words like on a shirt. Like that. <laughs> this is a truth so urgent for both Christians like myself as much as it is a truth for the unchristian here tonight. Now, granted, come and see, it's not the most attractive of slogans. You know, it's not quite as catchy as, I'm loving it, or melt in your mouth. But Christianity is not pastel, bubbly, Mary Poppins type of faith. Jesus was approached all the times by skeptics and the curious asking, what does it mean to follow you? He'd be out there doing incredible, insane things. And the skeptics and the curious would come up and they'd be like, excuse me, what does it mean to follow you? What is it like to follow you? You know what Jesus would say time and time and time again? He goes, if you want to follow me, pick that up. Pick up a cross. Deny yourself and pick up a cross. Deny yourself and pick up an instrument of death. 
Oh, oh. Mm. <laughs> I mean, how luxurious does that sound? How glamorous. It isn't. See, to follow Jesus, if you want to follow Jesus, it will be an everyday death. It's basically like you can call yourself a deadhead. You see what I did there? <laughs> Twist! And it's here, it's here, it's here, it's here, it's here, it's here, we find delight. There are many delights in the Christian faith, but they all start here. You see, by the very nature of identifying with Christ by name, Christian, is then to identify with Christ in his death. But that also means in his resurrection, we identify with life. That to become a Christian, we must first die to all other false identities. The old is gone and the new has come. That is what baptism symbolizes. All that old garbage, old man, old ways left in the water. And we are ripped out in newness. If there's anybody here again, I will say, and you, have, you are a believer and you believe on Jesus has not yet been baptized. You got seven days. Let's do it. Again, Lewis continues in Mere Christianity. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run, what? Only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look to Christ and you will find him. And with him, everything else thrown in. I learned this for my own life. I want my children to learn it years before I had to learn it the hard way that I don't want to bear my my own. I want to bear the name of Jesus. My own name bears hatred and loneliness and despair and rage and decay. It's here where our delight enters in. Not by our efforts, but by his. Before we could even think of getting to the actual parts of Christianity, the whole finding our own Calcutta thing, our delight is not found again in what we can do, but what has been done for us. Like the gospel mantra. And when this is abandoned or forgotten, hear me out, when this is abandoned or forgotten or perverted, isn't it easy to see why all these unfavorable reactions of the unchristian possibly could come to those who are Christian? Any deviation from doctrine, duty, or delight. Apparently, it makes people like Woody Allen want to throw up. I just kept thinking this over and over in my head today as I was putting this together, going, one sermon or, or one idea about, yes, there's some rough imagery, imagery with Christianity. We will not be able to change the world's perceptions of Christianity. But what kept hitting my heart like a hammer to a bell was, we may not be able to change the world's perceptions, but we might be able to change our neighbors. We might be able to change our neighbors. You know, that's like one of the vast reasons we have neighborhood dinners the way they are, so that people can come in and go, huh, these guys aren't freaks. <laughs> Serious. We want people to walk in and go, okay, they have real life struggles. They have real life, hard, real life hardships. But there's something, they seem okay. Or Despite all these circumstances, there's this crazy joy they have. 
Christians here tonight, though, hear me. My biggest fear in talking about what it means to be a Christian was for anybody here to hear that this is Pastor Casey just screaming a plea of work harder. That this is a pastor shouting, be a better Christian so we can change the world perception of Christianity. Do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. Because I bet right now, if I went around and I pulled this room and asked you about those three Ds, doctrine and duty and delight, or asked you about how is it going following Jesus, I'm assuming the, the, the majority of us would come back and go, well, I need to read my Bible more. <laughs> or some of us would come back and go, well, I, I should go to church more. Or I should stop this, or I'm certainly not perfect here. I need to clean this part up in my life. You know, I struggle here. So I'm not a good Christian, or even possibly potentially. I don't know if I'm Christian at all. All of these qualifying factors of what makes one better or what makes one Christian. Please let me just say this. Um, We got to knock that crap off. Now hear me. Yes, there may be things that do need to be corrected or dealt with. But we must root out the thought that by us not doing more, that somehow we've become less than. Do you believe this? Does your life reflect this? Does your life look like this? Do we live a life like this? The indicative truth over our life that has been proclaimed far before the title of Christian is that you are loved by God and that you are his beloved. All doctrine supports this. All duty flows from this. And all delight is found in this. All delight is found in this. No longer, no more saying that Christian life or the way God views us or how it could be better is dependent purely on Oh, I should just read my Bible more. Oh, if I just said a prayer longer. If stuff needs to be corrected, yeah, cool, whatever. But by us not doing more, no way, shape, or form are we less than God's beloved, God's children, the apple of God's eye. Amen?